What's going on, Gaden? Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate you being here. Luke, thanks for having me. So excited. Of course, of course. You know, I um, it's kind of funny how we connected. We're both out here in Reno right now. I met you through your husband, who is an amazing guy too. But uh, when I heard what you did, I was so interested and I felt like it would be selfish if I didn't record the conversation that we had, because I feel like the knowledge that you have and the area of work that you kind of focus on is is pretty dang cool. And I also think it's so underrated, especially when it comes to um, you know, parental health, when it comes to, you know, having a newborn, when it comes to your quality of life. So we'll be talking a lot about like sleep today and different variations and spinoffs of that. But I, uh, I just had to say that is I got to get you on the podcast. Cause I think it'd be a fun conversation. And I just know too many people in that season of their life right now, where they're planning on having kids, having a kid, having another kid. So I just know that a lot of people can benefit from this. So I appreciate you being on here and letting me kind of pick your brain selfishly. So um, just wanted to say that out loud and and also just getting to know you as a person too. I, I just love having cool people on the podcast. So I appreciate you being on here, but for the people who don't know who you are, just give like your, you know, two to five minute word vomit on, on who you are, what you do and, and kind of how you got here. Yeah. Well, so my name is Gaden Lewis. Um, I am a mom of two. I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old, and I'm a pediatric sleep consultant. Um, so I got certified and really just got into it because I was a mom and I was learning about sleep for my children and trying to figure out what worked and what didn't. So that's kind of why I decided to get certified and help other families um, get the rest that they need and deserve. I love that. And it's kind of funny as coaches, right? I've said this on the podcast before. A lot of times it's like we end up becoming a version or people who we wish we had at one point in our life, right? And and kind of our purpose or our why you could say in quotations is like helping the people um, that are maybe going through stuff that we've gone through or just make their experience with whatever that we went through a little bit easier. So I totally resonate with you on that too. Um, maybe tell me about just a little bit about your kind of uh, process, having kids, what your expectations were, what reality did, like slapped you in the face, so to speak, when you did eventually have kids and kind of how, just kind of how your experience was with that. Yeah, absolutely. So that you're exactly right. That is why I got into this line of work is because I really could have benefited from having somebody like myself um, on my team and supporting me and encouraging me when I was first um, becoming a mom. So I um, had my first child and I didn't know anything, obviously, because you just don't know anything. And you read so much online and on social media and blogs and all of that. But the hard thing is it's all conflicting. And so you never know, you know, what really works, what doesn't, what's right for you and your family and your child. Um, so I just felt so confused. And my son was just not sleeping. Um, he would cry all day, every day. I thought he had colic, which is one of those gray areas that no one knows what causes it, what it is, how to help it. So I just felt really helpless and hopeless and just thought I'm never going to sleep. He's never going to sleep. He's just always crying. I mean, I remember just sitting in my room, holding him while he's crying and I'm just crying too. And I'm like, what do I do? Um, so sleep deprived, so exhausted, all of that. My mental health was suffering. My relationships were suffering and he wasn't getting the rest that he needed. You know, I, I kind of read online and knew that babies, you know, newborns need about 18, 20 hours of sleep in a 24 hour period. And he was getting like maybe seven. 
So I knew something wasn't working and that's kind of what got me into uh, this line of work. Yeah, that's cool. And it's, uh, I've heard it, uh, just even talking to my wife about kids and, you know, our social circle of, of, you know, them becoming parents for the first time. And it's funny because sleep is often one of those things that is joked about and is kind of a talking point for conversations of like, Oh, get ready for no sleep for the next year. And I, I just, I find that comical because it's, it's almost like people wear it as this like badge of honor of like, you know, I'm a mom or dad and, and I'm not sleeping and I'm trying to get my baby to sleep as much as possible. And what, what I'm doing is the best that I know how to do. So I'm just going to keep rolling with it until he turns one or two, or she turns one or two, you know, and I just don't, I just don't think that that's the best way to approach, you know, obviously all this stuff and slight pivot here, but I'm just curious, uh, just to like lay out for the people, everyone knows that sleep is important, but I think it's probably one of the most undervalued components when it comes to health. And it's oftentimes the thing that is sacrificed, uh, in pursuit of other things or, you know, long nights, early mornings, doing what you need to do. Like obviously parents and people have to do what they got to do. Like it's admirable, but you also have to realize that sleep is one of those things that you said improves your quality of life improves your performance, your productivity, your ability to, you know, handle life stress, ability to be a parent, but off the top of your head, is there things that you would say, or like, Hey, these are the most important things about sleep when it comes to maybe this season of people's lives where they're like bringing a a child into their world, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. So, you know, we know just biologically and through research that sleep for both babies and adults is essential for your immune system, for your mood management, um, for just your growth and development, you know, more for children, um, you know, your just sanity, honestly, like all of those things. I mean, it's crazy. You know, if you look at, if you're consistently getting less than six hours of sleep as an adult, you are as inebriated as if you were drunk. So you're not fit to operate a motor vehicle. And so, but like you said, as parents, you know, a lot of times we, we hear this narrative of, well, you know, once you're a parent, you just never sleep again. That's just how it is. And if you're a good parent, you just deal with it and you get through it. And I'm really passionate about educating that that is just not the truth, that no one is capable of doing that. And um, yeah, of course, you know, when you have a newborn the first few weeks, you're going to be up in the night a couple times, but, you know, it's essential to also rest during the day when they're resting, you know, for that first, those first few weeks and all of that. And you really can get seven to eight hours of sleep in a 24 hour day, even with a newborn. So that's really what I'm passionate about is because you don't have to sacrifice sleep in order to be a good parent. Like we kind of think that we do. Totally. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that like, you know, there's going to be outliers. There's going to be unique situations. The baby's sick, you're sick. Like there's a lot of things that can influence like a night to night basis, but it's not about usually what happens. Some of the times it's about what happens most of the time. And if most of the time, you know, something's off, they're crying all night. You're only getting four hours of sleep. Baby's not sleeping throughout the night. Usually it sounds like that's kind of a sign of like, Hey, something might be wrong or, you know, maybe we need to change our outlook or you know, habits, lifestyles, whatever it is when it comes to putting the baby to sleep and for our, our own selves and being able to just be a little bit more like, um, like an investigator almost, instead of just like rolling with the punches. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I hear a lot of parents say like, well, my child just isn't a good sleeper. Right. Or you, Oh, you're so lucky. You got a good sleeper or, um, 
you know, my child just doesn't need as much sleep as others. And really that's just not the case because there's no such thing as a baby or a child that is not a good sleeper. Every baby needs 14, like I said, 14 to 20 hours of sleep in that first year of life, the higher end of that for the newborns. And then the lower end of that as they get closer to 12 months. So where they are in that range can vary, but they still need that much. So if you think about it, your child is getting 14 hours of sleep a day. Well, you can absolutely get seven to eight. You know, and so I think, um, like you said, of course, there's times where your child is sick or you're sick, you know, and things happen. But really, we're looking at when you're in a situation where you are chronically sleep deprived and your child is not hitting that minimum amount of sleep, something is off and needs needs to change. Totally. Yeah, I love what you said of like this label that we just sometimes throw on things and we don't know what's happening is like, oh, it's just he's just not a good sleeper or I'm. Right. I hear that a lot of time with adults too. It's just like, oh, I'm, I'm just not a great sleeper. I've never been a good sleeper. And what's funny about that, if you go back like three, four podcast episodes ago, I, I tracked my sleep for like a year and a half with Oura Ring, um, which I go way, way too much detail on that podcast. I'm going to spare everyone the time today. But a lot of times what I've found, because I was once somebody that said that about myself in certain areas, but what's really true is like, it's really your lifestyle and your habits that dictate your ability to fall asleep. And it's also your priorities and, and the people who like say, Oh, I'm just a bad sleeper. You know, I'm not pointing fingers or anything, but a lot of times it's just like a, it's just a excuse or justification to not try and improve on that. Right. You know? I just wanted to say that. And the same applies for your kids and your infants and, and the, you know, the babies that you're bringing into your life. So you said something like, Hey, 14, maybe even upwards 16, 17, 18 hours a day is sometimes common for, you know, sleep patterns here in your practice and people you work with people that you kind of start helping. What is like normal? Would you say? Cause I, I, I feel like a lot of people maybe have their own experience with this, but is there like an average or something that you've seen in your practice that are like, Hey, this lower baseline is not good and getting them to hear and then eventually to hear is kind of like a good stepping stone. But if you had to say, what are can, kind of some averages that, that people can look out for? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk the numbers. Um, so really when you're looking at the first three months of a baby's life, so that would be the newborn stage, really, um, you know, optimal would be between 17 to 20 hours of sleep in a 24 hour day. So that would be, if they were getting that amount, like I said, their, their mood would be, you know, optimal, their immune system would be optimal and their, um, you know, growth and development would be optimal. Right. Okay. So that would be kind of the gold standard of you want to be somewhere in that range. Now it, you know, the lower end of that would be, you know, maybe 16, 17, but you really wouldn't want a newborn baby to be getting less than 16 hours of sleep in a, in a 24 hour period. Now that's between nighttime sleep and daytime sleep. Cause they do, you know, sleep a lot during the day, obviously. And then when you're getting, you know, past the newborn stage and kind of, you know, I work with babies in the first year of life exclusively. Um, my favorite age group is to work with is newborns, but I do work with babies up to age 12 months and really, you know, between three and 12 months, um, you're wanting them to be somewhere between like 14 and 17 hours. So that's why I say like it's 14 to 20, which is a huge range, but their sleep needs change so much as they get older. And, you know, it's kind of interesting if you look at adults, like research shows adults tend to need between seven and nine hours of sleep in a 24 hour period. And babies are the same, you know, they're going to fall somewhere different on that range, but they do need somewhere in that range. And if they're getting less than like 14 to 15 hours, that's when things are going to start. You're going to see other symptoms. For sure. And now anything 
less than that or people coming to you and like, hey, my baby is not getting 15 hours of sleep totality over the course of the day. What are kind of some common like infant sleep problems that you see? Uh, I mean, you don't have to list everything out, but maybe just some of like the big ones that are usually some like, you know, areas where you first focus and then just like peeling back from the onion from there. Um, and then also like we can get into maybe like how to solve them and, and different things too. But I'm just curious of like, what are some triggers that you're looking for when you're kind of talking about this or working with, with parents on this stuff? Yeah. So I would say the number one thing I see um, with the families that I work with, and, and this will be, you know, interesting for you because you're a dietitian and it's what's important to realize about infant sleep is that feeding and sleeping go hand in hand, right? So they're two sides of one of the coin. So um, they just affect one another. So the number one thing I see is that babies are eating too often, during the day and during the night. And so what begins to happen is that they're sort of snacking. And you as a dietitian understand this because when you are like, let's say you grab a handful of potato chips every hour, you know, all day, all night, right? Well, you're never getting the full, a full meal. And so you're, you're never like full enough to sustain longer stretches of daytime or nighttime sleep. So you're probably up at three in the morning getting more potato chips. So I kind of say that if you're feeding your baby every hour or two, um, that tends to, you know, lead to snacking. And then, like I said, they're not getting full enough to sustain the, the longer stretches of sleep that they need. So that would be like the number one thing that we work on first that I see. That's cool. Let's talk about that maybe a little bit more. And I think it's so relatable to adults too. And even just working with people, like sometimes getting people out of like the grazing mentality and into like, Hey, three structured meals throughout the course of the day. Like sometimes you find your, your tendency, I'm not even going to say binge, but just to like eat more later in the day. It's like, sometimes you're just not adequately fueled or getting enough energy earlier in the day through a certain period of the day. And your likelihood and your tendency to like, to be able to control yourself around certain foods later in the day decreases. Um, but also your hunger and your satiety cues are you know, they're never actually working to their full capacity because you're not actually filling yourself up periodically right. throughout the course of the day. And sometimes just switching people to like, Hey, let's get a certain amount of energy and calories and protein at this meal. And then at lunch and then at dinner, sometimes it's like the people who are like chronic snackers find that they don't even need to snack anymore. Right. We all know those people are like, I need my snack at, you know, 10 AM or at 3 PM or my nighttime snack. Like sometimes that want or that craving for that goes away because people are actually getting full, right? And sometimes it takes doing that for a while to get used to that or into a routine. Would you say that it's kind of similar with, with infants and newborns of, hey, maybe we have a bigger bolus of whatever feeding, whatever we're doing and trying to like get them more on a schedule with that? And kind of what does that schedule look like if that's something that you're kind of focusing in on? Yeah, absolutely. So really what we see is that you know, I believe it's adults as well, but especially young children and babies thrive on consistency. So if their meals can happen at the same time, pretty much every day, and then, you know, their naps and their bedtime and their wake time, that consistency is key because when they have a consistent daily routine around those things, then their circadian rhythm regulates, their digestive system regulates all of that. And so, like you've probably found it is pretty helpful for, I'm sure, you know, your adult clients to say like, I pretty much eat every day at this time. And, you know, then I eat lunch at this time and then dinner at this time and babies are the same way. 
Um, so that really helps that consistency. Cool. Cool. And, and even like speaking of timing, um, even like in something that we've seen in the research too, and something I cover on my podcast along, you know, with tracking my sleep with aura ring, but like the later that I consume food and I have this experience working with clients too, but like the later you eat right before you go to bed, sometimes it's always not the best thing. Like just cause you can do that. And just cause you can sleep on that sometimes doesn't mean you always should. And sometimes like having some space between when your last feeding was, you know, a few hours before you start to try and go to sleep or wind down for the day, you know, for me personally, I found made a huge difference, right? Like just not having a ton of food before bed and, and just trying to have, you know, my body expect to digest that food and then also try and wind down and tap into this, uh, parasympathetic state and to be able to like get some quality sleep. Like a lot of things were impaired because of that. Is it similar, uh, sometimes with babies as well, or is that not matter as much when it comes to like timing, you know, as long as the, the consistency in which they're feeding is, is consistent day to day, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So there's absolutely parallels with infants and adults in that. Um, so generally in the first three months of a baby's life, they do kind of eat around the clock. So they're typically going to eat every three or four hours, um, you know, during the day and in the night, once they hit about three months, sometimes if they're underweight, it's closer to five or six months, somewhere between that three to six month range, they generally do better, um, just health wise and overall, if they're not eating in the night anymore. And so this is where parents struggle because they don't know exactly when that they should expect their child to no longer eat in the night. Um, what we kind of see is if children are still eating in the night after about six months of age, um, like you said, their, you know, their digestive system is never having a, a break. They're digesting 24 hours a day. They're not getting enough rest because they're up eating all night. So then we kind of see sleep debt start happening. They're overtired and then they actually fight sleep, which is really interesting. Um, you kind of get into this cycle where, you know, because they're eating every hour or two all night long, um, then they go into the morning and they're exhausted. And so then they fight their naps um, just because they're overtired and our bodies produce cortisol when we go, you know, longer than we should without sleeping. And they can only be awake for like an hour or two at a time. So when they're not getting enough rest, they will kind of go into this overtired cycle. Um, and that's when parents say, well, my child, you know, seems tired, but they're not going to sleep. They're fighting sleep. And that's what I help them get out of that cycle. Yeah, that's super cool. And it's something I didn't know. So thank you for kind of enlightening us and everyone on that. But uh, it's fascinating too. And uh, I'm just curious too, especially just kind of relating stuff to adults. Cause I think a lot of this is still relatable from even like, you know, adolescents to adults to elderly, like there's a lot of parallels with some of this stuff, right? Like your nutrition and your habits across, across the lifestyle tend to stay similar, but they just change and, you know, amplitude, so to speak, uh, depending on your needs and what season of life that you're in. But a lot of times people, especially adults get in this mindset of like, okay, something's not going right right now. So I'm going to change something, but I want an immediate result or I want something to happen, you know, fairly quickly to kind of reinforce my, you know, um, you know, my compliance to whatever it is that I'm doing. So I'm making a change and then I can see, you know, what I want to happen, happen eventually. Right. You see with dieting, I'm going to change my diet, you know, after three days, I haven't lost 30 pounds. What the heck, you know? And, and it's like, I'm trying to relate this back to like, you know, addressing 
maybe even feeding and sleep troubles and all these things. Is there a time frame where you're like, Hey, let's give this a three week stretch, right? Where we're really implementing, we're trying to do these things. Like what is the turnaround times? If this is some of the, the root cause or problems that you see that people can expect to like, just get some sort of validation that what they're doing is correct. Because a lot of this stuff, right. Is sometimes out of the norm or um, like you said earlier, right. It's kind of confusing or conflicting information you see out there. Some people might be reading in the baby logs, like they wake up at 2am they're hungry. So you give them the bottle or you give them the breast or whatever it is. And, and then before you know it, it's just kind of feeding into this like negative feedback loop almost. And, and we're not actually solving the root cause, but long-winded way of saying, how, how quickly can you see improvements happen when changing some of these things when you're working with people or even in your own experience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So the, in my approach, what we do the first week is we just focus on spacing out those feeds. So I'm really helping parents to learn when is it, when is my child actually hungry? Because what you'll see a lot of times is that, um, we interpret every cry as a hunger cry. So every time the baby cries, we stick a breast or a bottle in their mouth. Well, the problem with that is that they're learn, you know, they're they're snacking, like we said earlier. Um, and then, like, not to mention just what that does later in life of every time I'm sad, I, you know, eat, right? I mean, you kind of think about the long-term effects of that. But so we sort of get out of that cycle of every time the baby cries, we feed them and we space out those feeds appropriately so that they have time to digest each meal and, and sleep between meals and all of that. Um, and then we work on that consistency, like we talked about. So having consistent meal times and consistent sleep times and all of that. So that's all that I do with my families the first week. Then really the second week is when we do more of what you would call, I guess, sleep training. And really what it is, is you are just giving your child a little bit of time to see if they're actually awake and they're actually hungry before going in and feeding them. And so um, what's really interesting is that babies actually cry in their sleep a lot of times. Like they will move around, they'll fuss, they'll grunt in their sleep. So a lot of us, especially first-time parents, will just jump on them immediately and feed them the first peep we hear. And it's really helpful if you can give, you know, three to five minutes of time to see if they're actually awake and hungry before assuming that they need to eat. So that's really all we do is it's just about a five minute period of just waiting and kind of observing the cry and, and determining what type of cry that it is before we jump in and intervene. So we can kind of give them a little bit of space and opportunity to put themselves back to sleep. Yeah. And so really that whole process takes, you know, anywhere from a week to two weeks. Yeah. Which sounds really hopeful, honestly. I mean, that's, a, that's in the grand scheme of things, two weeks is nothing at all. Right. Especially when it comes to like, <laughs> when it comes to, to baby weeks, I, I know. And again, I, I can't speak personally, but I know people going through that, like when the baby's not sleeping, when you're not sleeping, when you're, you're trying to juggle like work stuff or family stuff or um, social stuff. And a lot of things are happening at once. Like there's a lot of external stress happening. Like a week can feel like forever. Right. And I think that's, that's just another reason why, like really focusing on this and, and identifying like, Hey, is my baby getting enough sleep? Am I getting enough sleep? Because that's really the thing that can improve the quality of life of you and the baby. And, and also maybe just change the trajectory of, of, you know, how it grows and how it feels and how you feel and, and your ability to wake up every morning and feel really excited to, to go be a parent and take care of these things. You know, some of that gets old. I know after a month of, of chronic sleep deprivation and just not feeling like anything is working, you know, just, there's just, there's mentality. I feel like with us 
as kind of a culture now of like just white knuckling everything and just holding on for dear life. But you know, a lot of situations, you don't always have to do that. So I think that's really yeah, cool. Yeah. I love that. And that was really my story was, you know, just feeling like, gosh, I don't think I'm cut out for this whole parent thing. Like what have I gotten myself into? I'm so exhausted. I can't do this. If the expectation is that I'm going to get four hours of sleep for a year or two years, like I can't do that. And I can't be present or attached to my child during the daytime because I'm so beyond exhausted And like you said, I think we sort of just say, well, that's what you have to do. Just that's what you signed up for when you had a baby, you know, just get through it. And I'm just here to tell people like we don't have to sleep is not something that we have to sacrifice. There's a lot of sacrifices that we do need to make for our children, but sleep doesn't have to be one of them Um, because if they're getting the adequate sleep they need, then we will as well. Um, And so I think there's just kind of needs to be a shift in that whole mindset around new parenting of instead of saying like, oh, get ready, you're not going to get any sleep, just saying like you can thrive, you know, in the newborn stage and and having a baby, you can be present and and happy and and effective and, you know, functioning optimally um, in that season. So that's what I'm out there to do. Amen. Amen. And so some thought that came to my head too, uh, and assuming that both parents are involved here, right? There's obvious circumstances where that's not always the case, but assuming, you know, perfect world, both parents are involved, both parents are really willing to help and excited about this opportunity and X, Y, and Z. I, I find that sometimes males sometimes get the easy role sometimes in these, and I'm not saying it's not a blanket term, but it's just, uh, it's just funny. Cause I, I have this perception and, and some experience talking and working with other people. And it's like, you know, sometimes males are let off the hook sometimes because they don't have the breast or or whatever it is, or they don't need to go pump. Or sometimes, you know, the mom likes to feed and and do everything, but males are really not off the hook in this case, right? And again, I'm not making generalizations. Not everybody is like this, but I think what I'm trying to get at is like there's a lot of things that both partners can do for one another in times like this. So, you know, doing the feeding stuff during the day, like being able to to look at sleeping patterns and, and working, you know, with you and, and with each other to like improve how the baby is sleeping and, and crossing their eyes and dotting their T's in that sense. But is there, and I bring this up because I had as a dietitian, I have to do with this internship and you have rotations. And I did a, in a rotation at uh WIC, which is women, infants, and children. And it was like a month long. And one of my roles or projects was creating a poster and presenting it at this like fair or, or whatever it was about men's role in breastfeeding, right? Because there's actually a lot that people can do. And I'm not, I'm not saying we need to tailor this to breastfeeding, um, you know, individually, but the question I'm asking is like, from a partner standpoint, do you find that like you kind of have a feel for what both partners are willing to do, what they want to do? How do you kind of distribute the load and not make it so one partner, one, you know, mom, or even one dad is taking the brunt of all of these loads? Are there things that, you know, if someone's doing the feeding and other things, are there things in the back of your mind? Like, Hey, this is how we could be a real benefit. Is it alternating nights? Is it, you know, having the, the male, like do the meal prep for the week? Like what, what would you say? Uh, and I don't know what answers you're going to give, but I'm just curious. And that's what I was thinking about too, is like, how can we make this, you know, uh, um, a joint effort here instead of just one parent, you know, bearing all the brunt of all the work, you know? I love that you asked this <laughs> because a lot of time the mom does feel that way because especially, you know, if she is breastfeeding. It's, Really, she's the only one with the equipment to feed the baby. And so 
kind of every time the baby cries, dad's like, here, mom, you know, the baby needs to eat. And so, um, yeah, I think that it's really helpful if the dad or partner um, in the first, you know, especially in that newborn phase can really just allow mom to focus on feeding the baby and resting herself because she's covering recovering from the trauma of childbirth as well. So she needs that rest. And so what I kind of say is, you know, if, if you've got like family that can help or your partner or somebody that can, um, you know, handle everything other than you feeding the baby, um, that's really helpful. So the laundry and the dishes and the cooking, the, you know, all those kind of things, if they can sort of during that period of time to allow mom, you know, a month or two to really rest, that's huge. Um, because especially if you are breastfeeding, it takes so much out of you. Literally, it is like sucking the nutrients out of your body. And so you just need to focus on like eating yourself to get your like liquid intake and your nutritional intake up so that you can um, produce, you know, nutrition for your child um, and focus on that. And then if, if someone else can do the rest, just the beginning, it's really helpful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, like maybe, you know, uh, there's bottles or maybe uh, there's, you're doing formula and the male's doing it and yeah. the mom's trying to, you know, pick up the slack here and there. But I think that's a really good point. And that's, I didn't know what you're going to say, but I had an inclination that you might say something similar to that. Cause that's kind of the, the basis of what I made this presentation and poster on was like, you know, we have to, and from a male standpoint here, we have to appreciate the fact that like your wife or, you know, um, the mom of the baby has, really gone through eight, nine months now delivering the baby and now like, you know, expecting to recover from that, but also having, you know, this, um, demand to produce breast milk, if that's the, the route that you're choosing to feed the baby with and all these things, but that recovery process postpartum is a big deal. And, and not to mention other variables like, um, postpartum depression and anxiety, and, you know, even the stress of like, you know, people worrying about when they're going back to work and finances and, you know, all of these real life things that are just constant inputs of stress. You know, if, if you're in the, you know, the relationship and it's like, Hey, I don't have the responsibility to, you know, provide the breast for my baby to, to feed on. It's like, what, what else can I do? Can I clean the house periodically? Can I, can I, um, manage what our meals are for the week and everyone reaching out to you? What can I bring? What can I do? It's like, yeah, you guys can bring dinner, you know, Monday through Friday and have that lined yeah. up. Right. Um, and I, it, that's yeah. a really good point. I, sorry, I just wanted to jump in there because something you said, I think was really good that, you know, um, it's really important too, that the mom is going to accept that help. And so when people say, Hey, can we bring a meal? Hey, can we come help with laundry? It's saying yes. Like, cause you need help at first. And um, I did talk a lot about, you know, if you're breastfeeding, but like you said, it's also important to talk about if you're bottle feeding, it's, it's great if, you know, the dad can take a bottle feed in the middle of the night. So mom can get a full uninterrupted stretch of sleeping. You know, we, we personally, you know, did the whole breastfeeding pumping thing for about six weeks and then it just wasn't working anymore. And we did formula and um, our babies did completely fine with that. And my husband would, you know, take that middle of the night feed. And that just was so um, helpful for me. And then, you know, when you do start um, trying to help, you know, guide your baby to sleep all night, I've found that men are really um, a lot of times, obviously not, not, you know, this is sort of a stereotype and it's not always the case, but a lot of times men are a little bit more like, here's what 
what needs to be done. You know, this is this is the plan. This is what we need to do. And they're sort of like mind over matter. And so when you are trying to give that five minutes of space, you know, you can call that sleep training. But I actually don't even use that term for what I do. But men can be invaluable in that process in supporting you know, the mother and saying, Hey, like, okay, let's give the baby five minutes. I know it's so, so hard. And you want to just jump on them. Let's see if they go back to sleep. You know, let's really see this plan through. And I've just found that the the dad can just be so helpful in that just supporting. Yep. Totally. And I, I think, I think partners are going to figure out what works best for them, but it, it comes from a place of like, kind of checking the egos at the door, checking, you know, your own thoughts and beliefs and previous, you know, blog articles that you read, like checking everything at the door and like just having like an open and honest conversation around what each partner needs, I think is really important. And that conversation alone, I think can open so many doors and opportunities for your, for each partner to help, you know, each other individually, instead of just being this guessing game. And then people being offended when what they think is doing is helping is actually really hurting, but they ever never actually had a conversation and aren't, aren't on the same page, sort of speak of what's going on. So yeah, I, I yeah. think that's, that's really good. Uh, yeah. It, it, I mean, yeah. my husband and I had to have those conversations. I remember, you know, because, you know, he had to say to me, Hey, like, I love, you know, that the baby's been um, in the bed with us or, or really sleeping really close with us at the beginning, you know, newborn stage, but I would love to have our, you know, our room back and our bed back. And I would love to have that time to connect and whatever. And so remember why we made babies, right? So I think that, you know, listening to our partners and saying like, what are they needing? And, you know, babies are completely capable of sleeping, you know, independently. And actually our babies did so well when we did move them to their own space, Um so that's something that you kind of have to just like prioritize, not just the needs and desires of the baby, but also the needs of your partner and yourself, you know, and, um, you know, I had to say to him, hey, like, I know that breast milk is best, like it is the most natural thing. It is what's best for babies. However, I can't do this anymore. Like, because I was, you know, you hear the term double feeding, but that's basically when you pump milk. And then you put it in a bottle and feed it to the baby, which is really common now because a lot of women, it's just the whole breastfeeding thing is it's just hard. And so I was exhausted because I was either feeding the baby or pumping like all day long and I was not resting and I couldn't shower. I mean, you just can't do anything. And so we had to have that conversation of like, he really wanted us to continue with the breast milk because obviously it is like the most natural thing for the baby. But I just had to say like, this is, I can't do this. It's not, it's not best for the whole family, um, as a whole. And, and I'd be pumping and I couldn't even hold my baby when they were crying because I have this machine attached to me. You know, So you kind of have to look at like, what's working for our family, what's not. And obviously prioritizing the baby's needs at first, but then also the needs of, of everyone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You said it. And that, I was just thinking it, like, I feel like an, an overarching thing that we're talking about right now is just this concept of like taking care of yourself. And it's, I just can only imagine how difficult that is in, you know, a time like this where you're bringing another human into this world essentially. And I've just seen it so many often and have having worked with mothers and in a lot of parents and things like that. It's like, once you have a kid, your priorities obviously shift. And, and it's almost like that switch turns to everyone else before myself, especially the baby. And I just, I've been thinking just kind of introspectively with that and talking to my wife about that. And when we have kids and, and along these lines of like, I still think it's so important to have this mentality of like, I need to take care of myself 
maybe first or in line with the other things that I'm still taking care of. Because before you know it, like you said, you just get burnt out and there's just nothing left to pour after a period of time. And then that's when you get to like a mom in her fifties or sixties, and she's gone the last 20 years of her life, always giving her attention to other people. And then they just feel stuck. And it's kind of this, like almost like midlife crisis, like, well, I don't even know how to take care of myself. And maybe I've gained, you know, unwanted weight and I'm not in a place where, you know, uh, career wise, and I'm, I'm blowing this up into kind of <laughs> here, but I, a lot of it stems from this switch. I feel like when people have a kid and it's just like, well, everyone else before me all the time, non-negotiable. And I think what you said was really great. It's almost like just setting boundaries and acknowledging what you need. And, you know, you, I think there's a give or take, like you have to acknowledge that there's a lot of trade-offs that happen when you eventually bring a baby into this world, but being able to like set boundaries, understand what you need and, and having that bare minimum needs met is super important. Even if it's hard, even if the um, practices are out of the norm, even if it might, you know, piss some people off in your friend circle, like who cares? It's just, it's, it's always got to be about you and what's best for your family. And sometimes that comes from taking care of yourself too. So you can give to other people still. Yeah, that is really like you nailed it is like, that's like the heart of what I do is, is helping families and parents understand that, you know, yes, like being a parent is a selfless kind of love. It is giving to another. And that's the beautiful part of it. Cause it grows you, um, so much as a person, because you are like responsible for another human and it, it just teaches you to really love someone unconditionally and selflessly. But at the same time, if you are con- like consistently and chronically neglecting your own needs, you don't have anything left to give them. And I remember getting to that place where I was like, I can't even like be a present and effective mom and like attach properly to my child and like enjoy them because I'm so exhausted and because I haven't showered in three days and because I haven't had time to just like do what, you know, I enjoy doing outside of being a mom, because there's, there's more to us than just that one identity of being a mom or being a parent. It's like, there's more things that we enjoy our work, our friendships, our relationship with our partner, you know, all these other parts of us that we tend to neglect in parent parenthood. And I've just found that I can be such a better mom if I am, you know, making time for all those things. And so what's really beautiful is that if your child is getting, you know, this like amount of sleep they really do need, and they're kind of on track with that, um, you are looking at kind of a life where once they're about three months of age, they're sleeping typically 12 hours at night without waking at all. So like, for example, both of my kids, once they reach three months, you know, they slept 7am to 7pm or sorry, they, yeah, 7pm to 7am. So I could get up at six in the morning and like run and do what filled me up and shower and like get myself ready and feel like a human, you know, um, I could wake up before them because I got, you know, eight or nine hours of sleep that night. And so they went to bed at seven. And then my husband and I had a couple hours every night to like Netflix and chill and have a little date at home. And, you know, like I felt like ready when they woke up to like be a mom and be with them. And I, I don't think that I would have had that if I was up all night for months and months and years and years, like we're seeing. Totally. So there's hope is what you're saying. It's just a, it's just a good thing. Yeah. And uh, again, it's like, Hey, this idea of like, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's like that light doesn't have to be so far away. Like, like you doubling down and, and really prioritizing this and really appreciating it and asking for help when you need it sometimes could be the thing that gets you to those nights where, Hey, 
what's going on now is really difficult. Let's see if we can improve that baseline to just make it a little bit more bearable. And then we get to another phase of this, you know, uh, of their life. And it's like, oh, wow. Now a whole new, you know, other door opens up of ability to like get more sleep, take more time for ourselves, be able to do X, Y, and Z that we love to do. So prioritizing this, I guess, in the beginning can allow you to get to some of these places quicker, right? Instead of just like, kicking the can down the road and just trying to like grind through it forever. Sounds like. Absolutely. Heck yeah. Yeah. You were talking about just kind of like date night, Netflix and chill. And I, this is like a really difficult, I feel like question to answer because everybody's going to have their own way. They want to answer this, but even if people listening to this, it's just a question that they can use as kind of a thought provoking kind of statement. Like that's what it's for. But what would you say are like versions of managing stress when it comes to being a mom, being a parent, raising a child? And are there overrated, underrated things? I'm not saying like, you know, you have to go get a massage every single week and go to the casino or whatever it is and and spend the whole day there. It's like stress management does not need to be in that form. But like you said, getting up and going on a walk in the morning or going on a run or getting a workout in like like, are there things that you would classify as like tier one things that people could and should do to, Hey, maybe optimize their health, their mental well-being, and just kind of fit that into their life. So people can feel sane, sort of speak. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's really important to, to, when you're a parent is of a young child, you know, really an infant or toddler is think about, you know, what can I do to take care of myself when they're awake? And what can I do when they're asleep? And not doing the things that you could do when they're uh, awake, when they're asleep. So for example, like, okay, I know that if I'm going to like shower, like there's things that you can do, like learning how to shower while your baby just lays on the bath mat and they're going to be fine. And you can take a shower while they're awake, you know, kind of things like that. I think there's this, a little bit of this mindset that like every waking moment of your child being awake, we need to be like looking at them and stimulating them and entertaining them and paying attention to them. And a lot of that's really overstimulating for them. So sometimes like just letting them, like I said, lay on the bath mat and like, listen to the shower and watch, you know, the shower water on the, you know, glass or whatever is like so interesting to them. And so realizing that like, you can take care of yourself and, and take a run with baby, you know, put them in the stroller and go for your run or, um, you know, like, I think a lot of times we think like, oh, baby wants me to hold them right now. And, and they do need that, you know, um, enough, but they don't need it every minute of every day. And so, you know, like being like, I'm just going to do these adulting tasks, like unload the dishwasher and cook the dinner and rotate this laundry. And they're going to be okay for a couple minutes waiting. You know, I think that's the main thing I learned is like, Yes, you know, doing those things to take care of myself when they're sleeping, but also when they're awake um, is realizing that like they don't need me every single second um, and learning how to kind of keep themselves happy and entertained and that kind of thing um, has benefited them and all of us a lot. Love that. I love the classifying is like, hey, the awake and the sleep. Cause trying to fit like things that you could do when the baby's asleep that might be more time efficient and productive and trying to do that when they're awake, it just might be more of a cause of frustration than anything in certain cases. And again, it's, I think it's going to come down to the individual and what your life is like and what you care about and, and what refills your cup up, so to speak. So I think, uh, I think keeping that in mind, but yeah, thinking about what can I do when the baby's awake and then when they're asleep and then being able to like add or subtract things over time to find a routine that you feel good with. Um, I think that's really good. And 
again, I think when we talk about like stuff that we can do, that's really, it's really the things that we actually have control over. Like we can't control our environment and other things around us. But I think the other thing that we can control too, is like besides sleep and putting in effort with that is also like from a nutrition and diet standpoint and like a self-care standpoint, I think nutrition is often a really underrated part of the whole, you know, uh, birth giving process and postpartum process. And when done correctly, it can enhance and enrich, you know, the quality of your life, the baby's life, um, you know, support things like immunity and growth and development and making sure we're, we're, you know, giving the baby what it needs, what you, you, what you need. And, and oftentimes now in this kind of culture, I see today, it's like, how quickly can we drop the baby weight that we gained on? Right. And then you get into this mindset of like, sometimes moms or people are trying to diet, you know, to get back down to what their pre baby weight was. And, that in a version of its own is stress, right? So nutrition and in getting enough calories, you know, getting enough of the macronutrients, having, you know, uh, more variety, getting a ton of colors and um, staying hydrated, right? Like these are all super underrated ways that can also improve the quality of your life. And sometimes it comes from like, again, flipping that switch of like, okay, what did I look like before to understanding like, Hey, my body might take a year or two, if it's ever going to get somewhere close to where it was, and I know saying that as a guy is like, it's really difficult maybe for people to hear that. And I don't know what that experience is like for sure. Um, but we just have to come to this appreciation that again, life is completely different now and caring for another human is a big burden on you and your body and the baby itself. So being able to like do everything in our power to take care of that, to take care of yourself. Nutrition is oftentimes a really underrated way to do that, especially if you like you're breastfeeding too, because your energy needs surprisingly can go up by 500 calories instead of people trying to cut a thousand, 1500 calories off of what they were eating before they had the baby. And before you know it, like that can disrupt your sleep or make you feel terrible and not make you want to work out and, you know, just kind of have a domino effect from there. So in addition mm -hmm. to sleep, I think, I think from a nutrition standpoint, that's also something that we just if there's anything today, it's like, remember that you need to take care of yourself and nourish yourself too. Cause that's part of this process as well. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think that it's really common. I mean, at least for me that I was like not eating enough and not, I mean, obviously not sleeping enough, which we've talked about, but you know, you think about like the basic needs of a human, it's sleep, food, water, and like some form of like, you know, hygiene, right? Like showering, you know I mean? And those are the, like you said, the first things to go when you have a baby. And so I definitely was in the place of like, I was not eating enough. I was not drinking enough water and trying to breastfeed. Like you said, I've seen a lot of women get into the cycle of they're not eating or sleeping or drinking enough. So then their breast milk decreases. They don't have enough to feed the baby. So then they're pumping a ton. Well, they're wearing themselves out more. They're not producing, they're getting stressed. And then the cycle repeats itself. And so it's like stress decreases the milk that you produce. Like we know that based on research. And so, you know, you get into this cycle where you just can't get out because it's like this, you're just not caring for yourself and then you're not producing and then you're stressed because you're not producing and then you keep not caring for yourself. So I think like you're saying is looking at the basics of like nutrition and hydration and rest. Um, if we can just focus on those things at least, um, we just have to, you know, even as parents. <laughs> totally. And I mean, even just like saying it all out loud, you know, like there's a lot added to your plate when you have a kid, uh, even when you're pregnant, right. Or when you have your second or third kid 
And it's just, it's, I think it's really easy and it's nice having you here to have somebody from personal experience, talk about these things and, and balance the person who hasn't had a kid yet and gone through that process. But when you look at it and you list everything out on paper, it's like, okay, when I have a baby, it's like, I need to care for the baby and I need to, you know, have it sleep. I need to be sleeping. Um, I need to manage that baby's nutrition. I need to manage my relationship. Potentially. Uh, I need to make sure that I'm eating well and correctly. And, um, you know, having this form of stress management and being able to take care of myself, like, uh, getting enough water, like, um, just being able to like take care of yourself has so many buckets of like responsibility. Um, when you list it all on paper, it could be very overwhelming to just see this like laundry list of things that, you know, you should be doing, but oftentimes are very difficult to do all together. So it's not like you have to have the perfect plan and to do everything at once. It's like sometimes adding and, and again, like the baby references, it's like, you got to crawl before you can walk and then walk before you can run. Like you don't have to do all these things, but I think it's important to know like what these big rocks are, like what these big fundamentals are that mm -hmm. should be in place. And then knowing that you can kind of weed out all the BS that you might see on baby blogs or social media or, or choosing this infant formula without this particular type of sweetener and X, Y, and Z. It's like, sometimes I just feel like a lot of that stuff is more of a distraction than it is a help. And in a perfect world, I think people understanding and appreciating these big rocks will actually save them time, frustration, and energy yeah. put towards other things that are not going to give them the return on their investment like some of these other things are, especially when it comes to sleep and nutrition and everything else. So I just wanted to say that because that was on my mind. So <laughs> yeah, 100% agree. So cool. I love that. It's a uh, man. The hours almost fly by when we're doing podcasting. <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I have like one more question that I want to talk yeah. about. And uh, again, just because I feel like it's maybe something that's under talked about and not acknowledged enough. And, you know, we hear about complications with pregnancy and, um, you know, uh, insulin resistance sometimes with breast, um, with uh, growing a baby. Also like the difficulties when it comes to providing and feeding the the, the child when you bring them in. But a lot of times that I've seen and people that I know, and this is why it hits home to me is this idea of like postpartum depression and postpartum like anxiety is a real thing, especially if people, you know, have struggled with anxiety or other things before having a baby. And like you throw this huge life-changing event on top of that, sometimes having some of these things afterwards, if they're not acknowledged, they're not addressed, they're sometimes people don't even know about it. They just think that that's the norm or what they should be feeling. I'm curious if you have any experience working with people in this sense. And if there's, if there's anything, it's like, Hey, maybe here's some symptoms. And if you feel like this, maybe ask for help or, um, it's this common. And if you feel like this, just letting people know, to know that like, Hey, this is normal or, you know, something that can be common after having something done like this. I'm, I'm just asking like, do you know anything about it? And is there, is there stuff that you would say to people who maybe have experienced it, who are going through it? Um, not to say we need to help people plan for the worst, but just acknowledging that it exists and being able to navigate around that. If that's something that somebody is struggling with, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad we're talking about this because it's huge. And it's, this is really the main reason that I got into this line of work. I actually, my background is in psych and mental health. So, um, I got my undergrad in psych and then I went and got a master's in mental health and actually worked as a therapist, um, for a couple of years before I started, you know, this whole sleep thing. And so really what I'm doing when I'm doing sleep coaching is it's honestly like a therapy session for the parents. Cause it really is, 
you know, I'm not coaching the baby, I'm coaching the parents and how to, um, you know, just the mindset around sleep and feeding and new parenthood and all of this. And so that's what I'm so passionate about is, you know, I can say um, just from what I've seen, I don't know how many studies have been done on this, but just from my experience of working with like hundreds of families is that um, when the parents start getting the rest that they need, I see, um, you know, particularly with the mom, postpartum depression and anxiety improve drastically every single time. I mean, that was the case for me. And I'm not saying it completely, um, you know, solves it, but it's certainly a contributing factor that's exasperating when you're not getting the rest. Like you said, if we can kind of make sure we're hitting those three big rock pillars of health, of nutrition, hydration, um, I guess exercise would be another one. And then rest, really, when I see those four met, we're seeing, we still see some baby blues and some postpartum anxiety and depression and that kind of thing. And sometimes medication is needed, but a lot of times it's improving um, really drastically. And so what I kind of tell people, um, just when you're looking at what is postpartum depression and anxiety, so they go together. A lot of times I see it starts as postpartum anxiety, of like, oh, am I producing enough milk? Is my baby getting enough rest? Am I, is it going to be like this forever? I kind of say anxiety is the feeling of being helpless. And then whereas depression is more of a feeling of being hopeless. So a lot of times when you feel helpless to solve these problems, like you said, to get to the end of the tunnel for things to improve, you feel helpless to fix the current situation that you're in, then it can a lot of times develop into hopelessness. And that's when we see depression. So I kind of see like, it starts as postpartum anxiety and then it turns into the depression. But really, in terms of like symptoms and what it looks like, um, what I kind of see with the families I work with, the mom's feeling like some insomnia. So like even when her baby's sleeping, she can't sleep. Um, that's a lot of times that anxiety. Um, like your libido is low. Of course, it's like really common that you're not going to have any libido for a couple months after you give birth for obvious reasons because you've gone through like physical trauma in that part of your body. But if it's still you know, there several months later, a lot of times that's kind of a symptom. Um, appetite changes, either over overeating or undereating. Um, just obviously that excessive, like physical anxiety, like the heart racing palpitations, like that kind of panic feeling, um, just a lot of guilt and like feeling like you're inadequate as a parent. I see that's huge. Um, so the mom guilt is like the number one thing that I really work with the moms on coaching through. Um, so though, and then, you know, at, at its extremes, it's feelings of like desiring to hurt yourself or not care for yourself or even hurt your baby, which would obviously be like the biggest extreme. And we do, we have to talk about this because we do see this happen where moms are so exhausted and so just like beyond their limit that we see things happen with babies where it's like, you're not thinking straight. And so that's really why I'm passionate about this is helping moms not get to that place. Yeah, totally. Just like, again, not saying that you shouldn't be anxious when you have a, a kid, because I think that's just part of our innate response to some of these things. And it's just something that is going to happen, right? Uh, unless like we all know, one couple is like, yeah, baby's cool. It's chill. It's doing what it wants. You know, like there's people out there that definitely do that. But, um, I would say for the average person, especially for moms, it's like, 
there's always going to be this heightened state of everything that you do. Like everything is going to be a big deal and that's okay. Um, but we want to, like you said, I love that. It's like, instead of feeling helpless, like being able to identify what we can control, improve the things that we can and not saying that we can prevent everybody from getting to this state of hopelessness, but if even pe people do get to that state, it's just knowing that there is a way out, knowing that you don't have to do this on your own. And I, people who listen to my podcast have heard me talk for a while. They know my feelings on therapy. I'm a big advocate for it. And not saying that everyone has to see a therapist when they have a baby, but knowing that there are other resources out there and you don't have to do this on your own or just do it alone with your partner. Cause sometimes I feel like that can be isolating on its own as well. Um, just being able to like ask for help is one of the overarching kind of I think concepts of this podcast too, is like just being able to identify something's not right. I know I don't feel right. If it continues down this path, it's going to get worse. So what can I do in the moment to be able to like minimize some of that? And sometimes maybe seeing a therapist, hiring somebody like Aiden, working with somebody else. It's like just understanding that a lot of this is very complicated, but it doesn't have to get to a place where you think it does before you ask for help. Like a lot of times early on in this stuff, you can ask for help and maybe that can prevent some of the other things that might be worst off, you know, prevent them from happening in the first place. So thank you for that. Yeah. Get your opinion on that. Yeah. And I love that you said that because, um, you know, I mentioned earlier, I work with infants, you know, up to 12 months, but my favorite age to work with is actually newborns because I found that if we can establish those healthy sleep habits from day one in the newborn stage, it's so much easier. We can actually avoid even having to sleep train or, you know, a lot of people talk about the four month regression, which I don't know if you've heard about because you don't have kids, but, you know, essentially if we can get ahead of that and we can work on those healthy sleep habits before the baby's four months. That's the best time to do that. Um, like you said, we can get ahead of those things. And, um, you know, so that's kind of like what I want to educate because there's a lot on there out there of like, you can't sleep train a baby until they're, you know, four or five months of age, but you can prevent even having to sleep train if you do it earlier. So Heck yeah. the earlier, the better. I love it. Gosh, this was so great. I really appreciate all of this. Um, drop your plugs, anything, resources, websites, Instagram page, whatever you want to plug. I'll also put that in the show notes. I really appreciate your time. Um, and yeah, it just, I guess, tell people how they can reach you if they're looking for help. I know I'll be asking for help when my wife and I eventually cross that <laughs> bridge, but uh, I appreciate you sharing your your knowledge with us today. Yeah, it was so fun to be here. So you can find me um, on Instagram at Gaden Lewis. It's G-A-Y-D-E-N-L-E-W-I-S. Um, and then send me a DM. I have, um, you know, spots open for um, this, a discovery call. And so we can just get on the phone and chat about your family and your baby and what's going on with sleep and just see if it'd be a good fit to work together. So that's really the best place to find me. Um, my website is the space for what matters.com. And really the reason I named it that is just because I think that, um, it's important for us as parents to make space in our lives for what matters to us. Love that. Thanks again for coming on. I appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for listening to this episode. If you found value and enjoyed it, it would mean the world to me. If you posted a screenshot to your social media, if you do, make sure you tag me so I can say thanks. Or if you're on iTunes, scrolling down and leaving a five-star review would be much appreciated. And if you ever want to get in touch with me, you can always find me on Instagram at LukeSmithRD. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. I'll see you on the next episode.